Yo, welcome back to another episode of a podcast room by a software engineer. Boy, do we got a topic for you today. We're all going to be talking about money, 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 and freaking money. Uh, I'm joined with Andy and Stan. So, yo, Stan, how you doing? What's up? <laughs> and Andy, how's you? Yo. I'm pretty sure we all have opinions on money at the end of the day. Well, I mean, more specifically, savings and investments. Because, um, I mean, some people say that tech people live in a bubble kind of thing just because, oh, look, like we're making a bit of money and then we always have savings and investments. But that's not always true. Like, I've definitely seen cases where, like, we got engineers out there who, you know, um, don't exactly have savings or are also, for other reasons, don't have savings because they either have debt or something else. So today, you know, we're just going to dive into, you know, all that fun stuff. So I guess, you know, just overall, like, your overview. Do you have, like, a kind of philosophy on money, I guess, then? I think on the spectrum of being very conservative or liberal with my money, I definitely lean quite conservative. I save a good amount <laughs> well that, that's a good philosophy to be conservative about it wish more people were like that but andy yeah i'm definitely on the other side i'm definitely uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, i was totally not digging money. at you but <laughs> 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 sorry you were saying <laughs> yeah i definitely have more debt than savings so i'm on a i'm, I'm definitely on the uh liberal side but transitioning right exactly like, yeah. yeah investing more into the savings side well, at least, like, you're conscious about it. Because, like, if you're able to say that, that means you kind of know what's going on. As opposed to, like, a lot of times people won't even know that they're like, oh, shit, I owe, like, this to, to who or, like, this to that. So, I mean, I think, like, what 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 is interesting in terms of, like, how I see it is uh, I've definitely been very conservative. Like, throughout my whole life, if I could save, I'll definitely save it. Um, but I think just as a, as a, you know, a step back in terms of, like, how do we kind of put into context what we're going to be talking about there's three main concepts that kind of ties all this together. There's like the debt bit, which is, you know, all the negative stuff, right? So like, if you have no debt, that's great because you don't owe money to anybody and then you could use that for other stuff. So that's one aspect. And then you got savings, which is the bit where it's like, you know, when, when you get to the positive, right? You get to put a little bit in the savings, that kind of, you know, a little bit of cushion of what you want to work with. And then like, if you are even more, you know, fortunate, you have the other step, which is investments, which is basically something that you could put into that could maybe grow that could, you know, you could make it work for you. When people say make the money work for you, a lot of times they'll be talking about investments. So I think those are like the three main concepts of how any of this works. Uh, it's actually interesting as well, because you could have all three at the same time, you could have debt, savings and investments at the same time. Or you could have like different combinations of it, you could have like, a lot of debt and no savings and no investment, which is kind of scary. Um, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, live life on the edge. Yeah, yeah, day by day. But then on the other side, you could also have like savings and investments, or some people could just have savings and like no investments at the end of the day. So, um, and also the other thing that I, I like to point out is that like I think most of the time when we talk about savings and investment, we talk about personal savings and personal investments. Those are all very like uh, you related. But then I feel like today we definitely have time later on to talk about you know more on a higher level, like a general uh, company finance, right? Company can have debt, company can have savings, and company can have investments as well. So I think that's going to be pretty sick. But um, yeah, let's just dive into it. I don't know if you guys have any more to add in terms of like just general concepts with these three things three thing that I mentioned, sorry. No, let's, let's dive in. Yeah, <laughs> sick. So I mean, yeah, personal finance. I think everybody loves talking about this, uh, especially, you know, us uh, working in the tech world. Everybody's quite, you know, conscious about it, see what's going on. Um, but yeah, if we talk about personal debt, what, like, what is personal debt? Maybe you could categorize, you know, loans you take out for, for college or something that could fall under personal debt. 
Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, I mean, yeah, you definitely named something that is like so common and like so yeah. <laughs> something that a lot of people can relate to. Like a that's good a pretty common one, I think. Like, uh, it's like I don't know, like a, a car loan, credit card <laughs> You got you a car loan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you buy that with cash? <laughs> yeah, that Ferrari, right? You, you gotta, you gotta figure that out. <laughs> got it on twenty-five percent interest. <laughs> Hell yeah. Over 10 but you years, look fly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't worry. The red, the red really works on you, man. Yeah. It's an investment, really. Exactly. <laughs> Dude, yeah, like, there's a blurred line at this point. Yeah. Like, is it debt as investment? Is it both? Um, it's an investment in your image, you know? Well, the returns are great. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, they, they say it's a thing, you know, like, in a rap world at all the time. Like, people, like, flexing hard on, like, diamond, diamond necklaces. Like, Yeah, you got to have that ice, dude. <laughs> gonna be blinged out dude it, it could pay off because i if because of that you get more like sponsorships or more like clout because of that and then you make it into like a you know a full-blown career and all that it's it's an investment at the end of the day yeah i think a lot of smart debts end up being investments things like university things like coding boot camps where it provides you new opportunities to you know create money or create value i was gonna say but then anything that you spend on can become Tough to say. <laughs> no, I'll go back to your point. Yeah. <laughs> now I kind of agree with you that like it has to be calculated, right? Like when you when you invest into your education, yeah, it will it, like it has a higher chance of paying off than if you buy like a really nice, I guess, watch or something. Yeah. I don't know how that's gonna pay you off unless you try to like resell it or something. Yeah, I guess that's a really good point in terms of like personal debt. Same thing for me. Like really, it really just means that anything that you, I guess, take a loan for. Obviously, the most obvious one is uh, school loans and everything. And then this whole credit card situation where a lot of these companies incentivize you to put it on a credit card, that is a loan at the end of, at the, end of the day. Uh, if you're smart enough, you should be able to pay them off right away, which is technically like a temporary loan and then you'll pay it off. But then a lot of times that could like, you know, go into a little bit spiral and then go completely out of control. So uh, car, car loans, very, very common. Those are another big ones. And um, yeah, I mean, we could definitely share, share, you know, quick experience of like how we dealt with it in terms of like student loans kind of thing. Cause uh weirdly a lot of universities are more expensive than i thought <laughs> no that that's all fair coming from a canadian right now um i was very fortunate because i went to school in montreal so the government are like known to be really helpful with uh, tuition over there so a lot of canadians are very happy with uh, tuition i think one year though they tried to hike the price by like a hundred bucks or something and we had two hundred thousand students on the street like protesting about it and that never actually got bumped during that time. $100? So, that's yeah. like a rounding error. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it was something like insignificant, but like there was such movement behind that. We were like really conscious about how much we pay in our tuition that like, dude, there was a massive movement. So that was really impressive to see. But like in terms of my personal experience, um, I actually never took any loans for, for schools, which is, uh, I don't know if it's more of the common or uncommon case. Um, I remember I was working a lot of day camp and like I was working at American Eagle at the same time. So I remember... Every time I had a paycheck, it was like, dude, like most of it's gonna go, gonna go to my tuition. I don't want to get out of here with any student loans. So I was so conscious about saving so much money every semester as well to pay it off. So I think that's just my personal scenario. But I don't know how it was for for you. Uh, yeah, I I was also in a pretty fortunate situation. Uh, my parents they were probably around middle class. Uh, we applied for FAFSA and got got a, a good amount of money from that. I had like a few scholarships. Yeah, and my parents, like, they, they were in the situation where they actually paid their portion, uh, as opposed to I knew some people in college where uh, their parents wouldn't pay their portion, so they'd have to pay for all of it, and then they had a lot more, a lot more debt than I did. 
Um, so by the end, like I, I was pretty much debt free. Like once I graduated, with like working a few jobs, you know, having the scholarships and like the government money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely had a very, uh, or like a somewhat different experience. Um, I was pretty fortunate too. Like I had a bunch of like tuition assistance from the government, but um, I definitely did take out uh, a sizable amount of loans. <laughs> like I want to say, part of it went to tuition, but the bulk of it kind of went to living expenses <laughs> is that a broad <laughs> broad bucket yeah. of living expenses yeah. it's definitely very broad i definitely had a very good time in college <laughs> hey if it wasn't then when right like exactly. that's actually a good point because like is it is it true i don't know if it's completely true that like if you live in a state that you go to this the university to is a lot more favorable in you same thing for me like when i went to montreal i was living in montreal so like i was very fortunate that the people living there has like a advantage of not paying that much. I'm guessing it's kind of similar scenario if you have like somebody who lives in whatever, New York and they go to school in like Alabama, they'll be paying a lot more than if somebody lives in Alabama and goes to Alabama. Yeah, I think for the UCs, at least at UC Berkeley, um, the in-state tuition when I went was around 13K or something. And then the out-of-state was probably like, I forget, probably like 30, 35, 40 or something. Yeah, like, um, I think if you're in-state, the state provides um, tuition assistance, too. So, like, if you go out of state, you can only pull from, what, like, FAFSA, and that's mm -hmm. it. That's actually a, a clean cut, by the way. And, like, I feel like there's, if you go onto the flyers, they'll have, like, two sections where it's, like, in-state and out-of-state. As opposed to when when I was looking into this, I feel like we never got exposed. Like, especially in Canada, you don't get exposed to, like, the these obvious pamphlet columns that tells you, like, oh, that's in-state or that's out-state or whatever. So, I well, I guess it's all luck at the end of the day. Is it worth... Because I'm thinking about this right now is that, like, I'm, I don't live in California, but if I think my kid wants to go to university in California, is it worth, like, considering moving to California before your kid actually gets to that point? And then, you know, you can benefit off the fact that you're not going to be paying as much to, to go to university that way. Oh, yeah, I definitely think that's the case, especially if you're, like, middle class and like that. I mean, this was, like, an additional 15K a year if you, if you didn't get any additional uh, help. Um, yeah, I, I've actually seen some people that have done that. Specifically, they moved to California because the UCs are generally pretty good public schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So having that, having that option is, is a yeah. good option for them. I think I've just blown my mind. I think I'm just going to move to California then. <laughs> yeah, you should stick around. It's a good state. <laughs> no, dude, McGill for life, man. My kid's going to go to McGill and then I'm kidding. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. But that's actually a really interesting concept because the whole point at the end of the day is that like, not only your kid is going to have less debt, but you're going to have less debt as well. So like... When you talk about personal finance, there's obviously the whole family tie of, um, you know, getting getting your finance in check with everybody. Um, but yeah, I think that's like uh, kind of all around our experience with like school debt, most likely, because I think that's the most significant thing that happened to us recently. But in terms of other things like um, car debt, for example, there's a lot of debates in terms of should you take a lease? Should you buy the car outright? Should we loan the car? I don't know what's your opinion on that kind of stuff, considering like, you know, you're, you're currently living in a position where you can make these kind of decisions. So like from your point of view, like, what do you think? Which one of those options makes more sense at the end of the day? Probably a loan. Like, I think it's very easy to get a very good loan if you have a somewhat decent, like, um, credit score. Like, I think there's a fair amount of dealerships that'll give, like, um, zero down, zero percent loans. Like, obviously, your oh, yeah, across incredible. like, you know, 36 months or something. Yeah. I mean, if they're offering that and you have like the appropriate credit score mm -hmm. to, you know, 
to actually get that type of loan, it seems like free money because exactly, you could invest yeah. it <laughs> and put it in like a CD or something and uh, you'll get guaranteed returns or like bond yields. Yeah. When you mean loan, is that for the lease or is that just for loaning the car? Because I, I, don't, I don't even know what's the difference between leasing a car and like loaning a car, I guess. When you lease the car, it's not yours. You're just, you're renting it more or less mm -hmm. for the terms of the lease. So like at the end of you paying all that money, you don't get anything. Yeah. <laughs> but the same thing as a loan then. At the end of a loan, you own the car. If you don't pay off the oh, entire car's value, yeah, they yeah. can they can repossess the yeah. car because you didn't pay it off, just like how they can like repossess a house like if you don't pay off like Yeah, I think I'm really mixing up all my concepts at the moment. Like right now I'm just like all over the place. So what you're describing the loan is basically you want to buy the car, which is where you get a loan from somebody and then they'll loan you that like, you know, uh, whatever that amount and then you can have like interest or whatever deal you want. As opposed to leasing, you don't own it because you just pay whatever the lease is and then you decide if you want to keep on purchasing the car. That's when you agree on doing it or you'd be like, nah, sack it. Like, I don't want the car anymore. Yeah, I think a lot of people who like have car leases, generally people don't, at least in the financial sense, don't think leases are very good. Um, basically because you don't own anything at the end. But if you find a lot of value in terms of like changing cars really often and having like a new car every few months, I think a lease may be appropriate. That's a, that's a very fair point because, uh, you know, the people that just want to keep up with the technology, right? Keeps up with. Yeah, you want the latest Tesla or something. Maybe you don't want to buy the Tesla every single time. <laughs> I, think the, I think the older you are, the more a lease makes sense. Like, really? If I was 75 years old, I'd probably lease a car. If I was 75, I wouldn't be driving. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do get your point, Andy, though. <laughs> like, we do 100% get that, where it's like. When you get to, to the you're back. 75 and you're driving, tell me so I, I can stay off the road. <laughs> so you can call the cops on. Yeah, I'm gonna call the cops on you. So that's the first one on dial, man. He's, he's got you covered on that. Um, but then I remember, I because I checked the web, the Tesla's website so often all the time, and then they have a third option where it's literally like you got buying the car outright, you got leasing it, and then their third option is loan, which is basically your loaning car, which I think price wise is the most expensive, but. What I don't get the difference between that, like loan and leasing, if that makes any sense. I so, think loaning is a shorter period of time compared to a lease at the end. Well, well, lease again, think of leasing as kind of like renting an apartment, right? And let's say you want to buy, the, so you can buy the apartment or you can rent the apartment. No, I, I get that, but there's a third option. I, yeah, so, so imagine like you could buy the apartment completely outright, just in cash, yeah, right? Yeah. And that's like buying the, buying the car. And then there's leasing the car, which is like, Oh, I'm renting the apartment, and then there's, and then there's the loan, which is like, oh, I only have enough for the down payment, but I'll pay you this much. You pay the the bank will pay the rest of it, and then I'll pay you this much until all of it is covered, and that's like the loan. Okay, so technically, right. two of those options means that you own the car, and the third option, well, lease, is the one that you don't own the car at the end of the day, yeah. basically. Well, like when you lease, you get the opportunity to to buy the car at the end, and then all the payments you've made um, counts towards buying it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Just because I've never considered it because it's <laughs> yeah. supposedly a bad option. Well, they keep on saying le like leasing is a bad option because you're paying for the depreciation of it, right? Because you're paying for the fact that by the time it leaves the dealership, whatever, instantly it loses depreciation, which is why it's a little bit more expensive than buying it just because, you know, uh, you they, they don't secure to sell. By the end of the three-year lease or whatever it is, like there's a chance you're not going to take it, which somebody has to pay for the cost of that, so... It's, it's really weird that we're just like tech people talking about like car car payment structures and all that. I, I think it's a really, really good point of view because um, I, I actually haven't 
needed a car ever since I moved out because I've always lived in like you know, uh, like in places like Hong Kong and London where you don't need a car. So those kind of thought didn't really think as much. But for people in California, obviously, like you can't get to anywhere because Bart sucks, train sucks. Like everybody needs a car, so that's a common thing. Um, but yeah, that's good to know that everybody's got a bit of experience in that. The one that I feel like the I personally have the least experience is when we talk about like debt, mortgage is probably like or like house loans are probably like the biggest thing that people always know about but getting into it or being brave enough to get uh, a mortgage is probably like the the step that everyone wants to do so um yeah what's your take on debt put into a house at the end of the day um i think it's you can consider it an investment i think it's especially in the bay area if you if you bought a house like anywhere in the bay area recently or in like the last 10 years that's definitely been an appreciating asset right there uh but uh, as of right now since the initial cost even like putting a down payment and like fighting off all the other people that want to buy a house the same house uh, uh it's i think it's it's definitely a risky and it's a tough investment to make because it requires so much cash up front mm-hmm yeah, that's true. Because, uh, I mean, yeah, we require cash up front when you want to own a car. We also require cash up front a little bit for student loans. Do you need a deposit for student loans? Oh, no. Student loans are incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the government you wants them. you yeah. educated. Yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah. I guess there's nowhere different than mortgage. You don't need any credit. You don't need any down payment. They'll just give it to you. Yeah. And then you take a trip to Peru and then you discover yourself and be like, oh, yeah, I'll come back. <laughs> okay, just kidding. That, that's not exactly how it works. Um, and yeah, for you, Andy, what do you think about like mortgages and like the, those kind of commitment? It's probably the more, uh, the most like justified debt, I guess. I mean, like a house is pretty vital. Definitely going to use it a lot. That's true. I mean, you could also rent for the rest of your life. I think that's oh, a that more too, yeah. that's a more common uh, mindset these days, especially with the housing prices with within the Bay Area. A lot of people want to rent because they also one you don't have to. There's no upkeep. Mm-hmm. Technically, the landlord has to do that, and the second secondly, it provides you a lot of flexibility in terms of uh, moving because people are oftentimes changing jobs quite often in the Bay Area as well. So you're not tied down to a single location as well. That's a really good point because, like, I mean, I'm gonna speak as a millennial. <laughs> I think it's just fair to say that uh, there's a, it's a lot easier to move around nowadays. It's a lot easier. I think back in back in the days, like maybe like 10, 20 years ago, uh, just move like moving and living in a different city might be a lot harder. Uh, you have to consider a lot more things. But nowadays, with you know more options and more communication and more easier way, more flights going through, uh, this generation of us. <laughs> Tend, are, are, are more like willing to go to a different, you know, living in a different state, country and all that. So I do get the bit where I've been a renter for, you know, the past couple of years, whatever. It sucks because you don't own anything. Like all, all <laughs> the money that I've spent on rent is not going into like, you know, owning a house at the end of the day, which is really annoying. But as you were saying, the benefit of it is that like I could lift off whenever I want. Um, yeah. I think my biggest regret is just not owning something like before leaving. That'd be the perfect ideal scenario, right? Yeah, it's- I think it's a very human thing to want to own like mm-hmm. a place like that you can call your own for there's a lot like a, of people. <laughs> there's like a kind of stability with owning a house. I don't know. Like if I was renting the rest of my life, I'd be afraid of like evictions and like uh, rent hikes. Yeah, you can't evict yourself, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're really critical about yourself, you're like, no. Um, it has to be really interesting that how we're talking about like, is it a must to own something nowadays? Like it's much more you know, debate on both sides nowadays. I feel like give it a couple of years ago, like everybody's like, no, you got to own something. Or like even my parents, I feel like 
they would say like, no, you got to own a house at the end. So it's really interesting to see from our, our, our point of view, sorry, like going forward, how many of us actually ends up owning something. And, or a lot of times if you don't own, what did you use that money for something else at the end of the day, if, you, if that makes any sense. Cause yeah. um, you can invest it in other investment opportunities. I was gonna say, cause the, the dumb answer is that like, oh, if you keep on renting, like the money that you spend doesn't really do anything, but then you have other money to, I guess, do other stuff with it. So you try to make up the fact that you're not paying a mortgage that appreciates over time, but then you, you know, hopefully you benefit off uh, somewhere else. The other thing that you mentioned, the Bay Area, it's like, it's, it's saturated. It's very, very like fluffed up in terms of like house prices and all that. Is it too late to get into that game or do you still think that like there's room to, to you know, own, own a house there and still have appreciation over time for it? I think it's doable. It's just much harder now to like get the down payment and stuff. I think there are certain areas in the Bay Area that could be good investment opportunities. Uh, if you looked in like Oakland, I think when I graduated, uh, housing prices were very cheap then. And then you look at it two years later and then some of these, some of these like condos have gone up like 200K in, like, in, in value and they were like, you know, 500 uh, two years ago. Uh, I think like maybe other areas in the Bay Area, maybe like Hayward, that's also like a sketchy place. <laughs> oh yeah, shout out to all the people who live in Hayward. Y'all are just going but I mean, like you can gentrify yeah, exactly. it, you can make it kind of like certain parts of Oakland. You like at like Uptown Oakland, like that place is pretty bougie now. Keep your eye out for like places that people are about to gentrify, or like where other where tech companies are about to move into. Yeah, like I think I feel like East Palo Alto would be a good investment right now. Yeah, isn't Palo Alto already like bumped up? Not not East Palo Alto. Oh. What's the difference between like regular Palo Alto and East Palo Alto? There's a pretty big distinction. Oh, so it's like literally like a, like not literally, but like there's a distinctive like visual line cut between. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating, but. We can like... drive down there if you want to see. My sister lives around East Palo Alto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, way to call her out like that. That's actually really crazy because things like Palo Alto is, you know, obviously known for housing big, big tech companies. Um, and for the people on the outside, like you don't really see that distinction. And then like, it's so good to have this knowledge. I wouldn't have never noticed any of this if I didn't move to California. I think that's kind of the appeal of why I came out here, like just to compare it to the different landscape. So when we're talking about like, we're talking about debt, we're talking about investment, we're talking about savings. It still applies to not just, you know, California. It applies to like the people living in London, it applies to people living in Canada. And it's fairly the same, I guess, concept is that London, when I was living there for three, four years, it's very saturated. Like when you're talking about house prices, like they're so outrageous. And the thing is like, it's Europe, right? Everything's condensed. So for like the price of a two bedroom, you could probably pay for like a whole house over here, which is kind of, kind of, kind of scary. But um, it is interesting that the approach of most people, I guess, in terms of mortgage is that it's a very, you know, safer way. Like you're, you're not, it's not a bad bet. If I could put it that way, is that if you get a mortgage, most of the time, you'll you'll benefit off of that um my thing that i i think one of my goal actually i don't know if that's possible is that like if i ever do own my first house i don't want to live in it i want to rent out it i want i want to be getting a mortgage for a house that i rent out and then i just live in another rental place like have you guys ever thought about something like that or is it like do you find it stupid no that makes a lot of sense i think it's uh like buying investing in properties to have rental incomes especially after the housing crisis in 2008, mm -hmm. a lot of banks actually started doing this. They would, they would buy up a bunch of these houses on the cheap and then they would start renting it out because they, because they were getting more consistent income from 
from renting it out as opposed to like selling mortgages to people. Because if a renter, they, they don't pay for a month or something, they can just evict them and then they grab a new renter and they come in and then you know the income stream just continues to go. Um, this is assuming you can find a renter that can actually pay off you know, the mortgage, like the property tax, all these, all these costs that come with buying a house. Uh, in the Bay Area, I think it's harder to find uh, rental prices that actually meet that that cost of like yeah. the mortgage and all these all these costs but I think especially in other other areas maybe in California or other states like it's it's very reasonable to find pro rental properties and buy buy them as investments and then rent them out yeah would you consider that for your first property as like you're still gonna be renting as in you're still gonna be living in a, in a rental place but then you own a house that you're just renting out on the side kind of thing I don't know I mean I probably want to Live in the house first, and then get like another one to rent. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> another one. Yeah, another one. Got to be nice and secure first. I I know of like an engineer like at Facebook of like, and his parents like they live in Arizona, and he has bought two rental properties over there. And one of the hardest things about doing that is having someone manage the properties. Yeah. And basically, his parents do all the work for that, but it seems to be like reasonable income streams for him if you can kind of find that find that setup i think that's a very fair point like justifying the math behind it like there was a model that i grew up with that i thought was an absolute like best scenario is that if you live with your parents and you don't pay rent to your parents you put all that into your savings and then you can put the down payment for a house and then you can do whatever you want with it i think still today that's a very viable model unfortunately like i don't live with my parents anymore so all the money i don't save goes into rent which really sucks but if i look at the math that how much rent I've paid the past couple of years. If I stayed at home and then if I took all that money and then just put it like save it up over time and then just put it on uh, a mortgage at the end, that I think I maybe would have been in a better spot. I don't know if the, the math makes any <laughs> Ask sense. Ask Andy about his experience. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't save any money. I just had like, you know, extra money to spend if anything. So. <laughs> That's true. Well, I mean like, that, you know, that enjoyment kind of made you what you are today. So, you know. That uh, that's definitely didn't hurt you at the end of the day, so... Well, maybe it hurt a little bit. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that. It's definitely a very enjoyable time. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Hey. Yeah, you enjoyed it at that point. But I'm glad you brought up, like, the savings bit, because things, like, we talked about a lot of these, like, loans. Well, when you get a loan and when you get something, you get debts. But then, like, obviously, on the other side, you could talk about, like, savings, right? What exactly is savings and basically how does it relate to debt to begin with? So... Uh, I think the, the examples that I probably mentioned before was that like when I was doing part-time job while I was studying, savings was basically every money that I make is just going to be, be used to pay off all the debt. And if I don't have any debt anymore, then everything that comes into my pocket is basically a saving, right? If I don't spend it right away, obviously, just because, um, yeah, just because that's what savings mean. <laughs> that's like the definition of savings. Or do you see it in a different way, Andy, in terms of like what you qualify as something as a saving? I mean, it's basically something that I just don't spend, like kind of put it on the side um, to spend later, basically. <laughs> well, the money's going to be spent. Yeah, it's like, a tool. Yeah. Is it actually going to be spent, though? That's the thing, because things like if a person in a year spends X amount of money, this is like the threshold that they spend, no matter, like, you know, no matter how crazy it gets, but then you somehow have an income stream higher than that, then those, that money is not 100% going to be spent, right? Just because like... You somehow don't either don't spend a lot or you manage to have a really big income stream of going something. That's definitely the goal, but like, I don't know. I think it, I think it might take a while for me to get to a point where I make more than I can spend. 
Yeah, about that yacht weekend that we had the other time. <laughs> we'll have to really think about that. Yeah, I, I think of my savings as often, uh, oftentimes my savings, I, I use them as investments, as tools to hopefully, you know, make more money or at least like not lose any money <laughs> to inflation. Uh, past, past that, um, yeah. I think that's that's generally how I view it, and obviously, like you said, you should pay off your debts before you <laughs> invest <laughs> invest in your savings accounts. Like, yeah, I kind of I kind of really agree with the bit where you were saying like, like everybody wants saving. I don't know I don't know how to put this. Like, everybody wants saving, but it's like kind of hard to to say like, oh, why don't you have savings? And like, not everybody wants to admit that they can't have savings at the end of the day. So, I think it's really good to point out like a couple of points where it was hard at times to not have any have any savings. And um, I think one of the things that kind of shocked me. Uh, when I moved out, actually, is if you move to a place that has a higher living cost than you thought uh, before moving there, that usually impacts your saving a lot. Because what you end up doing is that like you have to spend more at the end of the day, and which is why your savings is going to get a little bit affected with that. So that was a very memorable experience when I moved to London. That uh, <laughs> the flats there are so freaking expensive. Even Hong Kong, man. Like getting a flat in Hong Kong and London, like you'll be oh yeah, like you do the math, right? You got your whatever income stream, salary. And then you're like, oh, I could, I could, you know, put an X amount of percent into my living cost, whatever. And then when you get there, it's like, dude, my numbers are completely wrong, man. <laughs> like, I'm not going to have any savings for a bit until I figure the rest of it out. So I think that was my personal experience in terms of, like, the hardship of having savings at some point. And um, the other example is that, like, if uh, you have, like, already existing debt, and then when you actually full get an income stream, that's where the hard savings bit. Um, do you guys have any other, like reason why it's hard to have savings not even just as a tech person just as like a person in general i think the the main barrier to like creating financial habits that enable you to have savings uh the main criteria that i've seen people that have good savings habits is basically if their parents are financially literate uh it's like it seems like very obviously you can you can educate yourself about this stuff and all of this information is online, but I think it's very difficult. If I didn't have my dad around to like tell me how how my account should be set up, where I should allocate my money, I would be in a much worse financial state than I am today. Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of that's why I think a lot of people have a hard time saving. Is basically they don't have the information, and that information hasn't uh, been taught to them. Yeah, I don't know. I have. Uh needs and wants so. <laughs> <laughs> gotta fulfill them yeah you're just a hedonistic person yeah. huh? <laughs> you see and you want it and then you got it <laughs> i got it i like that um so as you as you mentioned so like do you so you end up talking about money a lot according to your family i don't know if that's a that's a thing or yeah my my parents uh especially my dad is very financially conservative <laughs> to put it in a Nice way. <laughs> I mean, like it paid off at the end, you know, like, you know, these are kind of like decisions that you make over time yeah. and somehow. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that fact now. I think uh, my my financial like literacy is is pretty good, basically because of my dad. Um, he, he like lived, grew up very poor and then he saved a lot and then he learned all the tricks so I didn't have to. And then he, he taught me a lot of those. I feel like you like kind of drilled that into your head where it's like, look where I came from. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, definitely. Obviously, uh, I, I shouldn't be speaking for him, but. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. I can only have the 
the PS2, I couldn't have that that GameCube as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's so it was a tough childhood. <laughs> and he's balling out, man. Dude, yeah. he had the PS4 like years before anybody else did. <laughs> had that like 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding though. But um, yeah, dude, I, I come, well, obviously I come from an Asian family and uh, my parents like, we talk about money. I was like, we talk about it. But the thing is like, we don't talk about like, public publicly in terms of, like we're not going to be at a dinner with like seven other friends and talk about like money all the time like within our family we'll talk about money all the time like we love seeing the kind of progress even as we're young you just, as you were saying like it's good influence right if your parents talk about like oh uh, we're we have a mortgage at the moment but then like how it works kind of thing mm-hmm. having actual numbers as example is really like something that i found was so useful so you know when we're talking about like living costs like how much do you spend in a year i remember asking our parents like oh as a family how much we spend in a year that is a game changer. If you haven't done it yet, like, look look back at when you were growing up as a kid, like, pick whatever year, like, year seven or whatever it is, and ask them, like, during that time, how much did we spend as a family? It's such a good question, because, like, everybody has to deal with it, whether you're super rich, super poor, middle class, whatever, everybody has that, and getting those numbers is going to affect, obviously, how you're going to live your life compared to that, so I'm glad you brought up about the whole family thing. Uh, nowadays, I don't know, we don't, we, don't, we don't really talk about money anymore, they just ask for it, and... I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Another Asian thing, right? You always got to give money to your parents. That's one thing that you always got to do. Um, there was another point I wanted to mention about that is uh, when you when you say like communication, like this information that you don't hear about it a lot as you grow up, um, I think what is good is that there is that influence for family. But if you have like people already in high school, whatever, talk about it in between friends or whatever, that, that should be a good influence to begin with, right? Other than the fact that like you're flexing on somebody else, be like, yo, look look how much money I got, man, or whatever. High school, I definitely was not thinking about money in high oh, school. Yeah. yeah, it was just like money, please. Yeah. Not, really, not really anything budgeting wise. Yeah, that's actually really interesting because I thought there was, there were other kids where like that they didn't think about money just because like their parents covered it. If you know what I mean, like uh, yeah, maybe you're hanging out with a bunch of nerds, Steve. <laughs> Hey, that's why we're here. <laughs> I don't know, I know how to say about that, but yeah, I know. I know for you, Andy, when you grew up in terms of like talking money with your family, was it like very prevalent, or was it just go with the flow, which is you know, perfectly cool as well. Yeah, there wasn't that much um, detailed talk about money. I mean, like my parents always talk about saving money and stuff, but I never actually knew about like the, the actual numbers. Like they never really brought that up. Yeah, so. like did they ever talk about like four hundred one ks and oh, any no, of that stuff? Not, no. Yeah. I still don't know what's a 401k till today, but I hear about it all the time. It's basically like a campaign that everybody outside of the U.S. knows about, but 401ks, God know what that even means to begin with. Um, that's, uh, that's a good point. Let's get into that. Let's get, let's get into 401ks because, you know, we're in the Americas and, like, and I'm pretty sure other countries have similar programs, but uh, can, I guess one of you give me just a breakdown of what a 401k is. It's a trap, no? <laughs> it's a scam is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> At least the traditional 401k, I think that that's probably a poor investment from my perspective. Yeah, but how does it work though? As in, like, you 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 put money into it, or like, how does it work? It's like, you give some somebody something money, and then yeah. So so your employer can offer a 401 401k plan, and basically this 401k is money that you put away, and this money is invested by some. 401k manager I think in our case it's by guideline mm-hmm. um, and this money you can contribute up to I think around 19,000 19, 19, I think or 19,500 19, I think this year 
uh, either pre-tax or post-tax money. If it's a traditional 401k, this is pre-tax. So, so you don't get taxed on this money, and this money goes directly into your 401k. But the catch is, basically, you can't withdraw it until you're really old. So you can't touch this money. Except for right now, during coronavirus, you can pull some money out of it. But that's like an exception, like an exceptional case. Uh, basically, yeah, it's like it's like a savings account that you're with special rules that your employer can provide for you. Okay, yeah, and from your experience, it's similar. Uh, what a four hundred one k is. No, yeah, that's basically what it is. Yeah, the the only difference with like a Roth four hundred one k is that it's post tax money, so it gets taxed before it goes into the account, as opposed okay, to yeah. traditional four hundred one k. It it doesn't get taxed, and it gets taxed when you pull the money out when you're really old and about to die. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, the concept kind of makes sense because I've definitely seen a lot of different programs kind of similar, where the whole point is that you put money into, you're basically putting your money in somebody else's account that you cannot touch. And then they'll do some magic that hopefully it'll, it'll end up being more money over time. And then by the time you get to take it out, which is when you retire, I guess, 65 years, maybe later, depending on how they change the rules, then uh, you just hope that that money is more and then somebody else forced you to do savings. Um, mm -hmm. I see that as a very you know, positive thing for people that you know uh, need a bit more help in savings, right? If somebody needs like another entity to take care of it, then that could definitely be a, a thing. But, but also, on another hand, there are people out there who can manage their own savings. So from what I'm seeing is 401k is optional, right? Yeah, you opt in, you can opt into it. Okay. Imagine being forced into that. Imagine like... Yeah. The 401ks are actually like an evolution from like pensions. Pensions were actually very common uh, before, mm -hmm. before 401ks. And pensions were actually a lot more expensive for employers. Uh, but this was also during an age where people would like work at the same company until like they died or retired. Right. Um, but the reason why pensions were really expensive for employers was basically you don't know how long someone is going to live. So, <laughs> so, and people live, people keep living longer and longer. It seems like there's like a trend, except for in the U.S. You know, there's a little dip right now. <laughs> Wait, so are you telling me that pensions are are they currently still active? Are there are there, there are companies with pensions, but they're a lot less common these days probably because they don't benefit the employer as often. Yeah, so, like, if you work for the government, I think all, most government jobs still offer pensions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you have both at the same, do you have a pension and a 401k or is it just one or the other? I've never worked at a place with a pension. I'm pretty sure you can only have maybe only one. I don't I know. Think most government retirement plans it's like a blend of both so you can oh. get like a pension and like a 401k as well okay that's interesting and if i got this correctly is that pensions and 401ks are always tied to your job i guess uh, or can you have your own 401k one, when you i guess don't tie with a company so so if like you leave a company uh and they don't offer that 401k plan anymore you can roll that money into like a like a roth ira account or something and that's that's like your personal. You can also manage. I'm not sure. Maybe you could set up your own company that <laughs> provides like 401k option. I'm not sure it's any it's that beneficial. That kind of like leads me into whether like 401ks are actually beneficial or not. I think there are a lot of restrictions to at least traditional 401ks. I think one of the main drawbacks is one of the main drawbacks of 401ks in general is you cannot touch this money for a very long time, especially if you're young. So if you're investing in your 20s, you cannot touch it until like you're 60 something. Um, 
and one of the reasons why people think traditional 401ks are might be like a very bad investment is you get taxed when you pull the money out at the when you're like 60 something and you really have no idea what that tax rate may be yeah it could be it could be a lot lower it could be a lot higher but i'm guessing with the way that taxes like with the debt in this country that taxes are going to be much higher by the time we're we're that age uh right now we're probably in like the lower tax brackets so the people that are retiring this year is like benefiting well i mean speculatively benefiting if they're retiring this year just because yeah. currently the tax I feel like, like those people, people they probably were like maybe they would have been during the pension age i think 401ks are a little more recent definitely yeah. they've they've only been like very active i think for like the last 40 years or so mm-hmm. you're talking about the boomers yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's actually it's quite similar because like when you're talking about these 401ks and you can only pull it out when uh, you retire i guess i guess a lot of people benefit off of it just because well do they, do a lot of people benefit off of it just because like it's been going on for years and like it seems to have like you know a uh, working system and people are actually being able to come out of uh working and go into retirement with some sort of cushion out of that well think about it like this if 401ks have only been around for 40 years they haven't really been tested <laughs> like maybe people that were like 20 or something are finally you know getting access to their 401ks like today right so it it hasn't been like a tested system that like oh for sure you'll get money out of this i think it's like a system that's been introduced to save employers money and that's why i'm a little hesitant to say they're always like a good a good investment option i mean i think i think it's a pretty safe bet like i think you will make some money probably not as much as you would be you know if you were actually managing it like as as you went through the 40 years or so that you're working mm-hmm. but it's it's easy to just like you know type in five percent or something in your payroll app and it just automatically gets saved you don't have to think about it all and then when you retire there's just some money waiting for you there yeah i wonder if there are like if like robin hood will add or one of these newer like fintech companies that allows you to buy like etfs and all these all these things oftentimes you could probably build your own portfolio that looks exactly like what the 401k portfolio is providing you and mm-hmm. if you look at it it's just like a bunch of vanguard etfs across a couple of categories it's not particularly complex it seems like it's just a percentage allocation to each of them and uh, if if one of these applications if you just like deposited money into it and it just reallocated uh that pretty much simulates like a 401k right there and technically you'd have access to that money at any point in time you don't have to wait until 63 or coronavirus hits yeah <laughs> the next <laughs> pandemic right the next yeah. one that's gonna happen anytime soon um that's a really good point does the 401k um charge you like a fee for holding your money or something because i do know yeah. some platforms other platforms do that so yeah i think guideline they charge us 0.08 percent yeah um there are other it's like human wise or something one of my girlfriend's company uses uh, they charge 0.15% and relative to like some of the robo advisors out there, generally those are around like 0.25%. So yeah. 401k like fees are generally lower, but it's still something. Yeah, I was going to say, it's still, it's still more than zero than if you choose your own ETFs and mm-hmm. use a free platform and it just sits there over yeah. time kind of thing. So dude, we're going to cut their market, man. We're going to cut the 401k market. We're going to be the middleman to 401ks and we're going to like scrap the fee and find some other way of doing that. Yeah, that's that should be a feature on Robinhood, <laughs> you know, like like a simulate a four hundred one k like health like portfolio. I feel like a four hundred one k would typically get larger than like the uh, the cap for the free service now. 
like if you were to put into this for like 40 years or so like what is what is the cap at robin hood for the free service like 200,000 or 100,000 i don't think there's a cap what do you mean by cap though as in like it's free um if you have less than this much money I actually don't know. That's a good question. But also, like, you I don't put two hundred k in Robin Hood. Yeah, I don't know if you have. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you're balling hard. <laughs> that's a that's a really good point. But at the same time, I feel like there's a kind of when you get when in your mindset there's a threshold. You shouldn't be putting that on Robin Hood. <laughs> you get yourself like something a little bit more, you know, historically uh, better, like Charles Schwab, TDO, Ameritrade, or any of the other ones. So. For sure, those wouldn't have a threshold of any of anywhere close to what we could afford right now. So the th- threshold would probably be like a hundred million or something like that. So I yeah. think that shouldn't be a concern in terms of the the how much can you put into it because they they want you to put all this money into your savings, which is why it's so appealing to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, Not to trash on four hundred one k's like too much, but like they they also are a lot of like tax benefits. I think I mainly pointed out like cons to the traditional 401k but right now if we assume we're gonna right now we have some of the lowest uh taxes that we would uh, see in our lifetimes then a Roth 401k actually makes a lot of sense because you pay the taxes right now and then when you withdraw like you don't have to pay anything on that yeah well it, it might have still a gamble at the end because you don't know if the tax is going to be like I think there's a pretty good chance. Like, it is a gamble, yeah. but yeah, I, I would say there's a good chance in the future things will, tax rates will be higher. Yeah, I think so. It's a, it's a 40 year question. As in, like, you'll get your answer in like a lot of years. Yeah. So that's kind of that's whack. But what I, I was really uh, happy that you brought up when you're saying like, oh, Robinhood or some of these trading platform apps should integrate these um, programs, 401k, Roth, uh, Roth uh, accounts and all that kind of stuff. When I was living in the UK, there was uh, an app that is very similar to Robinhood. It's called Free Trade. And uh, the moment that they launched, they actually offered an ISA to open your account. An ISA is the equivalent of, of Roth IRA, I think. So basically, the whole point is that it's money that you could put into it. There's a limit of every year how much you could put. I think it's maximum £6,000 last time I checked. And uh, that money, from what I understand, is you could put six grand into it. And all the profit that you make off of it, you don't get taxed off of it. And that's like a pre or post tax. Uh, so the money that you put into this post tax, if I'm not mistaken. So basically, that's like a Roth IRA. Yeah. Then that's okay. exactly even like the limit is the same. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, so they thought about that, and when that app launched, it came with it. So by default, is that you had the option to to open um, ISA, which is the equivalent of Roth IRA, from the get go. So it's not that crazy to think that Robinhood might come out with it, just because like I've seen examples of somebody else doing it. Is this done? Is this contribution also done during tax season, or is it? during it done throughout the year because i think contributing to a roth ira oftentimes people do it at the right when they like pay their taxes you also like uh add to like your roth ira account i actually didn't know about that um this these isa accounts um they you could put in whatever you want as in like throughout the year if you if you manage to save 200 bucks and you put 200 bucks into it and it just keeps on going so it's not oh, like I a see. fixed time at the end of the year when you do your taxes so like a direct deposit or yeah, you can set it up like that it's literally it's just an extra bank account that you got and you just put your money into that and then and the money that you put into it is already you paid tax for it already just because in the uk it's slightly different there's no tax season over there you already get your tax deducted before you receive your money anyways mm-hmm. which <laughs> makes a lot more sense there's no faff around it. at the end of the year nobody has to does Nobody have to do tax in April or whatever. You just live your life like every other month. And um, so, yeah, basically all the all the profit, all the income that you got, you can put into these accounts. And just relating back into the, the apps and like the new tax or whatever, 
the government, I think, well, it's a lot smaller in the UK because there's a smaller population compared to the whole of America, right? Uh, but I definitely do see like a viable thing where, you know, Robinhood will probably have Roth IRAs on it. I don't know if they already do. They probably, they probably have it on the roadmap. I wouldn't be surprised. But uh, one of the whole reason we're talking about this is because the tax bit of savings is quite significant, right? The, the less tax you pay, the more savings you got. Is that, do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. yeah. Money is money. <laughs> the less I pay, the more I have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like... Not saying that we encourage disagree. it. But... <laughs> yeah. Disagree. That's why, that's why it's such a big thing when you have, like, these tax frauds and everything. That's why it always makes the news when if somebody doesn't pay tax, it's a big deal because, like, it's significant enough for people to do illegal stuff around it, right? Just because nobody wants to pay taxes, and that's why we always have to do, you know... Uh, make our decisions around it and why these incentive opening these accounts is because oh look you save on tax at the end of the day so i uh, just want to point out that it's all always a game of taxes whether whether you're in the uk whether you're in 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 the states asia every country has a tax system and everybody every country has like tax broaders and all that so hopefully i'm not going to be the next one <laughs> actually there's a question that gets asked quite often um from different people in general is that how much percent of your income should go into savings or, like, do you have a personal goal or do you have a goal that, like, you know, you should recommend to a lot of different people? I don't really think about that too much, to be honest. I think I think more about the percent, the allocation percentages of where I put my savings. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you know, X percent should go towards, you know, bonds. X percent should go towards, like, ETFs. And some should go towards, like, individual stocks. Um, how much to have on cash in hand. But... I think once you have enough of like a pillow or safety, like some like safety parachute in terms of cash, uh, I don't know if I've ever thought about that too much. Yeah, I don't have like a hard number or like a certain split that I do. I mean, I have some like scheduled like account transfers that I have to always put money into Vanguard and to always put money into my savings account. But it's kind of just like, I don't know, if I spend less money this month, I'll put more into my savings. If I spend more then. I'll either put less or take money out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to debate that, to be fair. <laughs> like, yeah, I think that's a very, like, blessed situation to be in where yeah. you don't have to be too concerned about, like, actively thinking about that. Yeah, that's true. I think my bottom, like, the, the, the one thing that rarely changes month to month is, like, the living cost, right? Like, if I have to pay rent and all that, then obviously I, that's the number that you could take away from that. And then everything else will kind of justify how much percent of that goes into saving just because you spend less. Yeah, I guess I do think about like fixed costs, you know, like rent on average, how much I spend on food and like extra activities. But again, each month there might, some months there might be like extra purchases, like you know, I need a new laptop or something like, and that's going to increase like your monthly expense by quite a bit. Yeah. So I don't, I try not to think about it too much because it's. Because <laughs> it makes me sad. <laughs> yeah. Well, like the things that I need, to buy like if my car breaks or something i need to drive like i'm not like i'm in the situation where i don't think about oh what percentage of my savings is this going to cut into it's just like well yeah. i need to pay this off and again like mentally i think that's a nice place to be because it's not too it's not as stressful as thinking oh how much am i losing because of this um yeah that's a good point actually um when i was saying like the the fixed living costs and everything else goes into saving a lot of that saving goes into like this emergency fund that you were mentioning, just because you never know when your car's gonna break down, your laptop's gonna break down. So that's why one of the good way of having savings is kind of like that. Um, 
I'd like to put numbers into this. I think for the past couple of years, when I've always checked out of how much percent of my income should go into savings, it was definitely tied up with like basically how much my rent costs. I think that's the major bit. So I think in the past couple of years, after having living in uh, Hong Kong, Canada, London, and now here, the best threshold that I probably managed to do is that my rent was probably like 20%. I think 20, 20%, 25% was probably like the best I ever had. To give me a fixed cost, I don't know what 20% means. 20% of a million could be yeah. a pretty no, big I mean, apartment. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, like, I, I was talking about just my rent, for example, like your income, like just the rent, the best I've ever had is probably like 20 to 25% of my monthly income went to rent. So like, okay. oh, okay, I see. Yeah, sorry if I didn't frame that properly. That's pretty good. Yeah, I was going to say, so like that was probably the best deals I've ever had just because depending on if you're willing to share a flat, for example, that kind of makes it lower. So you aim for that. But then you obviously have other cases where you look at it, where you end up in a scenario where you're paying 30, 40, 50, 60% of your income into that just the rent. Then that's where the savings kind of gets a little bit like sketchy or whatever. So I think how I see it, how I try to calculate it is I just take the income and I just want to put it into a spot where... Uh, it's in that 20 to like 30, even like if you get 15%, that's freaking amazing. Uh, but that's like a really good starting point because reality is a lot of us are paying rent, even mortgage, like think about it, it's kind of the same thing. So that's usually how I calculate my, how much savings goes into that. But as we were saying, like everything else after that, like it kind of goes into saving, emergency funds. I think, I think a lot of rental applications actually also ask for like three to five times the rent, the rent price in terms of yeah. total income. Uh, so that oh, seems yeah. like a pretty similar number as to like what you were quoting. I think it's it's a good number to hit, maybe around 20, yeah. 25%. But there's a lot of times where I've seen uh, in London, I could have easily, I think I could have easily rented a flat that would have been like over 50% of my rent and they wouldn't have been worried about it. They'd be like, yeah, sure, take it. And like, they'd be more than happy to like rent it out and then if ever you can't manage it. So I think maybe it's a slightly different, you know, different landscape over there, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're just like, more predator about it and be like yeah well, we'll we'll give you that we'll give that flat but you have to pay us a lot so i want to say it's the same here too i think there's a decent amount of people in the bay who pay almost like 50 percent of their income for rent or like living costs yeah especially if you live in one of those like nice yeah. tall apartment buildings <laughs> with the common like places yeah. <laughs> that gym in the building as well that's nice a gym you never want to touch <laughs> <laughs> well not right now currently at all so that's uh I mean, we could definitely think about that, but yeah, I think use that as a number. I think it's going to help a lot of people out because it definitely helped me out throughout the past couple of years. So that's pretty good. Because um, the thing is like, we're talking about savings, but when we're mentioning all these 401k and all these other stuff, they're mostly used for investments at the end of the day. So like we kind of went from the stage where, okay, debt is the money that you owe. So every time you get paid for something, you pay off the debt. So like that's kind of the negative bit. Savings is the stuff that uh, after the debt, you get to have a bit of savings, cush uh, like a cushion putting onto it. The next step, ideally, what you want to do with that, which is a little bit harder to, to start to begin with, is putting it into investments. And like that is such a broad term that it could honestly mean anything. But as, uh, as I guess as somebody, somebody who works in tech and somebody who's looking at it from a very technical point of view, like what I want out of my investment is that I want it to be safe. I want it to be, uh, you know, I don't want it to disappear by tomorrow just because investments are definitely more at risk than just leaving your money into like a bank account or like a savings account, right? So now the question is kind of, kind of, how do you approach investments basically? What is, what is your view on investments and what, at what point did you actually start making these investments, I guess? Uh, 
I, I try to put a lot of my savings into investments. I think like mentally it's kind of difficult for me because I always want like a huge like <laughs> airbag, but honestly, I don't really need an airbag that big. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I, like I said, I, even though I talk about the 401k in a negative way, I do contribute <laughs> to my 401k. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a form of investment. Uh, I also do like a lot of personal investing uh, mostly in ETFs and stuff. I don't play the option game like you, Perry. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> what makes Sam play the option game? Because I talk about it all the freaking time on options. Yeah, I, I don't think I have the heart for that. It's it's too scary. <laughs> it's far too volatile for me. I'm a I'm a hodl guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair point. Um, you were saying there's uh, you could you could put money into um. 401ks and the other equivalent that we probably mentioned is that if you don't want your money stuck into that is when you're saying just regular normal investments is that you just open a investment account and you just put money into that and then you buy any kind of stocks etfs that kind of stuff right mm -hmm. just to just put it into perspective as opposed to a 401k you don't really choose anything you just give them the money technically you can like you have the option in a 401k mm -hmm. to like manage your oh. own portfolio yeah. okay so you, you i think they even get rid of the they even get rid of the the percentage that they take if you do that yourself. Oh. Um, so that would have been basically sure. the same thing as if you just had your own personal account. You know, I don't know. <laughs> the, unless the what? <laughs> I, I want to say I've seen that option before, but I don't know. I don't think I dug too deeply into my 401k to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that like the 401ks, like, you know, buying like ETFs and just kind of holding on to them, those are all like fairly passive investments. And then there's there's like more active investments, things like, you know, going to college, like trying to trying to educate yourself, going to like a coding boot camp. Those are all like investments in yourself as well in my mind. Yeah. I mean, we could definitely talk about that in terms of like, when we talk about investment, it doesn't have to be financial, as you were saying. It could be um, like, when you're saying it's a mental investment, it's not even mental, it's like knowledge. Knowledge is a really good investment. How do you feel about uh, school, but also any kind of other investment? People like taking cooking classes and all that kind of stuff. Do you have something that you've experienced like that before or? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely had some pretty worthwhile uh, personal investments. Um, college, I think, was a pretty decent one. Um, I mean, I think in terms of the actual content I learned there wasn't that worth it, but the overall experience, like I learned a lot from that, like just outside of the academic world as well. And then like I went to a coding bootcamp, that, that was definitely an extremely worthwhile investment. Like the salary difference from the job I had before to the first engineering job I had it was like over two times what I was making before so yeah can we talk about like investment in like these tech boot camps because we're so involved into it I haven't done it personally but when you say we we're talking about like the tech community in the bay area is that like we're so involved in these boot camps um like for the people that don't know the how the organization work or how the structure works and give us like a brief overview of what a tech boot camp is yeah it's basically like a three-month program where um these people try to teach you how to code. Like it's a pretty condensed program. It's long hours, typically more than five days a week. But at the end, it leaves you in a state where you're basically ready to take on a junior software engineering job. Supposedly. Yeah, supposedly. <laughs> Not everyone makes it to that point, but yeah. a decent amount of them do. But the thing is like, as you were saying, you put yourself in a position where you have a good chance of yeah. getting something after that, just because uh, what you learn with that in that bootcamp is do you, do you, are you going to say it's more practical than theoretical than in those boot camps? Is it a lot more hands-on or do you still learn a lot of like theory? It's basically uh, mostly practical. 
because I don't know, like the theory stuff is interesting, but then um, on the job, it's mostly practical work. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm putting that into perspective because like I did a CS degree and it was very little practical. As in like, not very little, but it's more like, I guess 80, 20, 80% of it was like theory when you do it in the setting of a university, as opposed to like, if you do it in the setting of a bootcamp, it's very much more intensive and practical. And I, I feel like it's been a good experience for a lot of people that I've spoken to. And like, they, they really come out in a bit where they're able to, you know, I mean, you work full time as a software engineer nowadays and like, you're really good at what you do. So that's uh, one of the great things. Um, in terms of investment, though, as we were saying, like what kind of, what kind of investment uh, did it entail? So there was a the money part of it. Is there other kind of like investment to it? And did you, how did you manage to, I guess, work with this debt that you had when you got into that bootcamp? Yeah, I mean, like um, there's kind of multiple things. The money thing is definitely the bigger part. Um, most boot camps are around like 20 grand. So if you don't have that money lying around, you'll have to take out a loan. And um, these private student loan companies are definitely more than willing to give you money, but just not at a very good interest rate. Right. Yeah. Um, there's also like the time spent. So when you're doing this uh, this boot camp, you can't work because the hours are typically um, it's it's usually like full time, um, and it's going to be like a three month period where you're basically not doing anything. So like if it doesn't if it doesn't turn out well, it's wasted time. Yeah. It, does everybody graduate from these boot camps? Yeah, they're all like ninety nine percent graduation rates. You got to make the metrics look good so more people want to attend. Yeah, that's a fair point. It's a no weeder class. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine being that 1% though. <laughs> no, but it's good that you're saying like, yeah, it's a big commitment, right? Big commitment, three months. Uh, but, but honestly, I don't think it would be a waste because like, as you're saying, if you end up passing it, you still got the qualification at the end of the day. Whether you don't instantly get a job after that, that qualification kind of sticks with you over time. I think for some people, it would be an, an extremely risky move. Um, for me, it was fairly easy because I just like, graduated college I didn't really I wasn't really doing much at the time like I had a job before but it wasn't like a career job um, but there are people who are a little bit um, older like I think the average age is like late 20s 30s mm -hmm. so when those people um, drop out of their existing career to kind of like switch paths and take this boot camp like if it, if it doesn't work out well they're kind of screwed yeah could they not just go back to their old jobs? Well, they can, yeah, but then it's like so much time like wasted in a way. That's three months. That's not too well, bad. Yeah. It's like three months, and then, <laughs> and then like it, it, it kind of depends on how like determined they are. Like you know, if they're if they're terrible but super determined, yeah, they could possibly take a whole year off trying to find a job. Oh yeah, that happens a lot. I yeah. see that a lot in the resumes that come through. Yeah. Like they're there for like another three to six months like, yeah. after the program. That's the thing. I think, as you were pointing out, it's a really good point. It depends on what stage of their life they're in. As in, like, as we're saying, if somebody comes out straight from high school or straight from college and then goes into this boot camp, they're obviously a little bit more flexible. But then when you have somebody who's already cemented themselves, like, in their 20s already, and then they decide to the career change or something like that and get into it, obviously, it'll have a bigger impact to that. Um, yeah, do you, do you like these boot camp stats? Like, what, what's your take on them? Do you think they're too expensive, not, not a good investment, or are they, are they really beneficial for, like, somebody growing and self-growth on knowledge? Oh, I think for the right people, they're like amazing, amazing investments, right? Like Andy is like a very good engineer and he came out of like these boot camps and he did it relatively quickly. It's, it's a pretty amazing thing to like see someone, even though it does seem like a lot of money up front, like 70K isn't trivial for most people. Um, 17, right? 17, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like 70. 70. Uh, 70 is almost college, college yeah. levels, maybe <laughs> UC college levels. Um, yeah, like I think 
if you have the aptitude. But I think I, I would also say that these boot camps are a little predatory. Like there's there's they're trying to sell people on dreams, and not all of these people necessarily have the aptitude for it. I think um, this like, might oh, be a little elitist, <laughs> like, but I. I <laughs> I like want engineering to be remain like a high skill, like <laughs> like a high skill opportunity. I don't want just anyone coming in and uh, you know coding it makes for a lot of bad code. Other people have to clean up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but you need both sides of it, right? You need to be reasonably balanced in terms of like the requirements and then what people are able to do. So like, I it, it's good that there is these two voices, right? One of them is that like make it a mass spread thing, make it everybody should be able to do boot camps, everybody should be able to graduate top notch and all that. But then again, you also want to have the other side of a coin where it's like, well, you still want a standard to what everybody should be able to contribute when they come out of it, so. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think software engineering is as ubiquitous as like these coding camp boot camps are selling. Like you, you remember when like all those Michigan people like lost their jobs and they're like, oh, we're gonna teach you all guys how to code. <laughs> and a lot of them, granted, a lot of them were like, why, why are we, I don't even want to do this. And then some of them tried and like, it didn't work at all. I think mm -hmm. there's like a very low success rate, I think somewhere around like 20%, like in terms of like job placement, yeah. might've been even lower, oh, wow. but like stories, like stories like that make me think that a lot of these boot camps are just. They should be in it for money, but they're they're like selling this false dream, and they're getting a lot of money out of it. And I think people are finally like kind of waking up to it a little bit that they're realizing not everyone is supposed to be doing this. Maybe we should have higher standards instead of accepting everyone and just taking their money and then telling them they'll have a job after, and it's very unlikely that they will. Yeah, dude, I love these reality checks, man. <laughs> I love these like just dropping all these. Hey guys, look what's happening. But um, no, but that's a really good point because I I love hearing about this because. Uh, even in Europe, like these, it's not as uh, prominent as in the Bay Area, but these boot camps, like tech specifically, of uh, this PHP boot camp or this like boot camp that teaches you these like coding languages, they're getting more and more popular. And I was looking at the prices in, uh, in London, I think some of them go up to like 10K pounds a year, which is, you know, for, for yeah, which is just about like 15, 15K US. The thing is like, yeah, it makes sense for the Bay Area. But if you talk about London and people, like London's tech scene is a tech scene, but like it's not the the same, not outrageous, but it's the same level as like the, the Bay Area, right? The Silicon Valley of tech boot camps. But then you got the kind of same price range as what they're imitating over here. I get a little bit worried about it. I get worried that people in like the do UK. They, do they get a whole year of education for that same amount? I don't know the exact length. I think it's probably a year. So they'll get That's about a year. four times longer. So if you're, mm -hmm. If it's the same amount for four times the amount of education, technically, if they're learning at the same rate. Um, oh, so you're saying it's a better deal then? Just, uh, yeah, like maybe you should go do your boot camp in London, <laughs> assuming they're the same quality. No, but what if, what if the amount of knowledge you come out of it is the same after three months and after a year? Then technically, if you do it three months, you got the, what, nine other months to already make headway of getting into a job and getting making back the payments, whatever, if you took a loan onto that boot camp that you paid already, so... I think that's kind of how I was debating a bit on how I was seeing at it. But it's just like these numbers, I don't want it to be normalized, right? I don't want to be talking to somebody who did a boot camp in London and said, oh yeah, I paid 10 grand like, or 15 grand to, to do it. I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit much. And then, and then if that becomes a new standard that nobody's going to talk to you unless you have that certification, then I think it's getting a little bit out of hand. But obviously that's just me. I'm, I'm definitely not the, the right demographic because I went to university for CS so I didn't really go through that path so maybe that's from my point of view outside on that so 
Um, I guess we'll have to see all these boot camps, but more than happy to like talk to anybody who's gone through it and you know share their experience because I don't get to see what's inside of it. But that I think that is a prime example of when we're talking about like investment. Uh, when we're not specifically talking about financial investment, that's a good self-developing investment for engineers, but also for anybody who's listening or anybody who just wants to you know change their life. But you were yeah you were thinking Stan. Oh no, my mouth. <laughs> you do have one (laughs) i think that's a really good point so i mean this whole bit of investment because uh i think what a lot of people get stuck in is okay they're sitting on a bit of savings but how do you invest like i remember when i finally got rid of all my student uh payment there there weren't loans my student tuition when i paid them off and i'm sitting on a bit of investment uh sitting on a bit of savings i'm like how do i put that into investment so just as a quick 101 all you do is like you just find a platform that can allow you to own any ETFs or any stocks or any kind of like assets that you want and you put your money into it and you buy these stuff and then you just let them sit there and then they'll hopefully grow over time. That's the basic one-on-one of making investments over time. Now, if we take it to the next step, the question that I just mentioned is that you got stocks, you got ETFs and all that. Um, what What's the difference? Like, why are there so many options and why why do we want this diversification actually like i think we all agree that diversification sorry of your investments is great um i guess why it's a very broad question but i like talking about this it's like risk mostly Mm -hmm. it's to mitigate risk so if let's say your house gets blown up (laughs) by by a bomber very likely scenario uh, and let's say you don't have house insurance on it for some reason yeah, 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 probably. Uh, you probably just lost a great portion of your wealth uh, but if you have a lot of your wealth distributed across a lot of different assets then hopefully no one tragic event will you know uh, take away the majority of your wealth yeah that's a good point actually when you're saying putting your eggs in like different baskets at the end of the day like it doesn't only apply to investment, but it especially applies to investments. Um, yeah, um, in that case, what are the let's do let's do uh, what's the most volatile ones versus what's the least volatile ones? Do you have a couple on top of your head which is the most volatile, Andy? Oh, crypto probably. I was gonna say that. Yeah, Andy's got crypto. <laughs> that's why I have no savings. <laughs> or that's why he's pushing the threshold on like Robinhood apps all the time. That Do- Dogecoin investment didn't work out, did it? <laughs> <laughs> that's why you're sitting with us like, no, I'm kidding <laughs> yeah that is very volatile but god knows crypto where is it gonna go man it could, Bitcoin could be worth 10 grand but like in, in a week it's like 6 grand at the end so that's a good one I mean, um, people are saying it's gonna go to like 100 or like a million or something I think <laughs> but I don't know I'll see it when I see it yeah exactly I mean I say that for regular stocks man like when you have like a company be like oh yeah Apple's gonna be worth like 2 trillion like I'll see it when I see it like they've, they've pushed so much boundaries already it could happen at the end of the day so I guess when I mentioned stocks and apples and like all these ETFs those would be considered like the more stable ones they're more like the ones that have defined themselves and they're ones that you know have a reasonable justification to if you want to put your money into that those kind of companies you're fairly safe mm-hmm. um first of all we're not financial advisors by the way like none of us are qualified to be giving any of this stuff but uh i think from my top of head like the most safe ones would be stocks etfs and like maybe bonds and like uh maybe for 1k that would be a good safe bet even technically that's just a conglomeration of stocks and ETFs and all that kind of fun stuff on my end the most volatile thing that i've experienced recently is stock options (laughs) um 
those those are volatile <laughs> AF. Like it makes no sense to me. Actually, I'm not gonna get into this. This is gonna be another episode because I can't even explain what stock options are. But the point I want to make here is when we talk talk about diversification is I've put a very small portions of my savings or my investments into options. So like yes, they're risky, but it's not gonna completely screw up my whole you know uh, investment just because it's a smaller percentage of what I you know invested at the end of the day. So mm-hmm. for you, Stan, do you have any like preference in terms of like the stable ones and what's your take on like what's the more unstable ones yeah again since i skew kind of conservative with my money um i the more volatile an asset is the lower alloc- allocation percentage i i will invest in that asset if i do at all like uh crypto is a little too volatile for me i'm not planning on investing any more significant amount of money <laughs> <laughs> into that asset, uh, into those assets. Um, I, I would say, again, I like to have like a good, I want to have at least like a year, a year's worth of just in cash uh, in terms of living costs. Mm-hmm. Um, past that, I usually, before the crash, uh, CD interest rates, so certificate mm-hmm. deposit accounts uh, are accounts where you just put the money in there and you can't touch it for a certain period of time and then you get higher interest rates out of that. I would put the rest of my cash uh, in CDs generally. And then outside of that, I mostly invest in ETFs because again, I don't want to buy individual stocks because yeah. they're they're a little more volatile. Um, and then a little, I probably put like maybe 10% like within individual stocks like that I think will do well but generally those are stocks that I want to hold on to for like a long time anyway. Love stuff it. like Nvidia and stuff like things I think will just gain value because of the inherent value of their business. It's also fair to say that we're kind of skewed towards like more techie stocks at the end of the day, are we? Yeah, just because like you're more knowledgeable about it. Like I don't really know much about like health like uh like health tech even though we're in the healthcare <laughs> stuff. But no, personally I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Like you're not going to full blown invest like real estate when like you never really touch real estate like the the business behind it yeah maybe i should have said like biotech maybe that's more accurate <laughs> not health tech <laughs> i know lots apparently <laughs> that's a great point actually so i guess the, the lesson here is yeah when you're fortunate enough to, to make investments make sure that they're diversified enough so that you don't get bit in the butt when stuff goes wrong shout out to 2020 shout out it's a great year i don't know if we <laughs> if we listen back to this if we remember what happened this year but boy has it been a year um, I think, yeah, just like final topic on this, that's something that I think is quite interesting that we might have experienced as our time is, uh, we talked about, we talked a lot about personal finance. So this is finance that we generally, like, you know, manage ourselves like as an individual, but from a professional point of view, from the fact that we worked in tech or we worked, uh, in, in, a, in a company for a couple of years, we noticed that companies also have this life cycle of having debt. And companies also have savings and companies also make investments. So let's just go over that real quickly in terms of like uh, what what kind of company debt or what is a company debt, I guess, if you guys have ever seen it or just know a bit more about that. Well, the financial side, I don't know that much about, but I know that there can be like debt savings and investments like into people, into the product. But money side, like not quite sure. Don't think I've been exposed to too much of that. That's a, yeah, that's, that's a good point in terms of like when they hire somebody and when they spend time to commit to a product, those are all debt that they're taking, right? Those are debt that they're putting money into and they haven't made money off of it yet, but they're hoping that, you know, doing that is going to pay off at the end. 
I think when you were mentioning like company debt financially, what it means, I think the best example is that if you work at a startup or if you work at a company who's still not profitable or not public or all that, a lot of times they would have gone in different rounds of funding. So I guess that would be considered a debt. Would you call that a debt or would you call that just, you know, just selling a bit of the company at the end of the day? Mm, tough to say. I think, I don't know if I think about a lot of company finances in terms of debt, I oftentimes think of it in terms of them investing in certain things because it's always about the future. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of, at least most of the companies I've worked at, they're, they're all startups and they're always investing in stuff. They're like, I want this engineer because I think they can provide this, they can like lead this team which will you know result in this outcome. Um, they, they invest money, a lot of money into people. Uh, and yeah, and hopefully that bears fruit one day (laughs) actually you make a really good point here is that like when you talk about company debt like the majority like over 90 95 percent of that is basically an investment at the end of the day debt like i'm trying to think of a case where a company debt is like it's purely just like money out of their pocket that they're not getting back but i don't think it actually happens for a company a lot of times when they're spending money is so that the purpose that it pays off at the end of the day even um sometimes one of the examples is that you look at really fancy offices from nowadays like all these tech companies where uh, everybody gets uh, really nice screens or everybody gets really good food good snack and all that people think that those are just money gone right people think are just money that people end up eating uh, if it's a really nice meal and that's it but as we're putting it, it's investment into the people and then the people are going to do better and then, you know, over time it pays off kind of thing. So I do kind of agree that these spending that companies do a lot of times are investments for the long run, which makes a lot of sense. So I guess we could definitely agree that company debt, yeah, most companies have debt, but they will transition hopefully into investment at the end of the day. So that's a, that's a really good point of taking on that. Um, what about company savings though? What does that even mean for a company to have savings? Or is that even just a concept that nobody hears about? I mean, that definitely exists. Like, there's companies like what Apple, who has, who just has like a fat cash pile they're sitting on. Yep. I don't know. We consider that as savings. I mean, a lot of startups, as they raise rounds, they'll have like a large amount of cash, and it's not like that cash sits in the middle of nowhere. They actually put it in banks, and mm-hmm. these banks invest the money, and they get like interest rates on that cash pile. Yeah. Do you have to be profitable to have savings? Because technically, if you're sitting on a bunch of cash, but the cash you still owe it to somebody else, would that be called savings or would that be just called you have liquid cash? Well, well, you want it in the future. I would imagine it's no different than saving as like a normal person. Like if you were saving for a car, you're kind of putting it to the side until you can actually get that car. Might be the same for a company you're saving for an engineer. Put it aside until you can actually get the engineer. (laughs) it's an expensive engineer engineer. dealership (laughs) (laughs) squirreling away for that one engineer (laughs) hey if it's worth it it's worth that yeah i guess from my in in my head when we talk about like the savings of companies that like they're in my head is that they're profitable you're just saying apple when you're talking about these berkshire or whatever they're sitting a pile of cash that they've profited so whether they'd be selling a lot of gear and then it covers all the costs that they have and this is why they have these savings sitting down is because that money is not used to pay off debt, right? That money is literally the profit at the end of the day. So, I guess yeah, I, I might, I might have a bit of a different uh, perspective on that. Like in terms, like you can have debt, like you can have debt. Like the the bank gives you a hundred thousand dollars, and technically you have debt, but you also have a hundred thousand dollars that you can invest now, right? Yeah. So, so I think like I, I would consider that hundred thousand dollars like 
I don't know if it's necessarily savings, but it is cash. It is money that you use to invest. So it depends on whether it kind of depends on your definition of savings. Can you invest savings? If so, technically you owe this money back to them, mm -hmm. but you can still invest it. Uh, if you see what I mean. Um, that's a good point. So I guess kind of the definition of like saving is something, it's money that you can invest at the end of the day, whether it's owed or not owed. Yeah, I, I kind of think of it as debt and then like liquid cash that you have and mm -hmm. then you use that cash for like uh, like certain investments. Yeah, I could definitely I could definitely see that um, point of view then because that, that is actually a really good point because the, the next bit after savings is, you know, just the general flow of investments is we, we already talked about the investments of hiring more people, investments of... Uh, planning this amount of time for this product to come out and investment of that. One of the more interesting investment that uh, I've seen is that you have companies outright buying other companies. And like you have a lot of cases, I think recently Amazon acquired Zooks or something, and then you have all these other cases. Are they using, I don't, I don't know if you know the answer, I'm just asking this speculatively, are they using like their profit to buy that? Or are they using like their liquid cash that is still owed to somebody else to do it? I think oftentimes with these acquisitions, uh, they it's not oftentimes cash acquisitions. Oftentimes it's like, oh, I'll give you this many shares of the company. Like so, for example, in that Zooks acquisition, Amazon probably gave away like a certain number of like Amazon shares right. to the people that owned uh, Zooks. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. If I if I think back of like what that means at the end of the day is that like the the shares that they technically. But would the shares be profit? That's technically profit, right? Well, technically, since it's a publicly traded share, like you could sell it on the public markets mm -hmm. after a certain period of time. Yeah, and the value that, that has grown since, they technically like put them in the green for that value. So they technically are using their profit to buy another company at the end of the day. Well, it's possible to take is out. Is it a profit or is it just like a value of like a portion of their company? Like a share is a portion of the company, right? Yeah. of future profits <laughs> they're giving a share of their own company and then they're acquiring another company jesus this this is why they need so many people to think about this kind of stuff <laughs> this is why i feel like i know complete jack about it um yeah probably I'll, i should probably definitely try to get somebody who's like has done something similar to that before because i honestly i feel like i can't contribute anything smart about company finance company debt company savings company investments at the end of the day but you know, that's definitely more room for, uh, to talk about next time in that case. So I guess that kind of wraps up then. Like we've definitely talked about a lot of money today, a lot of savings investments kind of thing. I guess for the people who are in a different stage, let's just give uh, from our point of view, like any kind of future advice to, if you could talk to yourself 10 years ago about how you manage your money today, like how do you feel about it? And if you could give advice, what, do you, what would you say? I would tell myself that I wouldn't need to change anything. I'm honestly uh, pretty okay with where I am right now. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's good then. Like, you're very content with that. I, I wish I was like that. So, Stan? I tell myself, stop making your dad do your taxes for you. <laughs> do it yourself. <laughs> it's just sad. <laughs> I think my parents will do it. <laughs> yeah, if I could tell myself in, uh, like, from back then is that, like, I think the best decision I've made is, like, pay off that goddamn student tuition or student loan ASAP. And then after all of that, you could have a little more free room to work with. So... I guess that's basically us signing off. Um, thanks again for joining us and we'll catch you guys on the next episode.